Hallelujah. God be praised. He is risen from the grave. Let's continue to worship the Lord together by reading the scriptures and specifically Mark chapter 14 verses 12 through 31. The title of the message this morning will be Passover Promises. Praise the Lord, you can trust His promises. God will do what He says He will do. We're in the portion of Mark's Gospel where we're at what we often call Holy Week, and specifically this is what we would call Thursday night of Holy Week. Uh, He'll be raised on Sunday, but here's Thursday evening, uh, Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 12. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb... His disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? He sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there prepare for us. The disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and said to him, uh, to say to him, one after the other, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. He said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, This very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. He said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Let's pray together. Father, give us grace now to study the passage before us uh, accurately. And what you want us to see and know from these verses, I pray that's what is made clear. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, of course, you may be seated. I feel like just about every week I give you a book recommendation, and I have two. One, the Bible. Read the Bible so that you can know God. And then secondly, uh, a book that I've read and now on audiobook listening to as I ride around uh, in in, in the truck is uh, Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly. Has anybody read Dane Ortland's Gentle and Lowly? If not, I really recommend it. Uh, And he says in the book... The cumulative testimony of the four Gospels is that when Jesus Christ sees the fallenness of the world about him, his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct is to move toward that sin and suffering, not away from it. That's his heart. So I want you to know as we study this scripture and we're leading up to the cross, that Jesus' heart is to move towards you 
When you draw near to him in repentance and in faith. Hey, Jesus is not fed up with you. Ever feel that way? Sometimes I feel that way. Like we are still dealing with these same sinful strongholds. I would assume by now he's tired of me and wants me to go away. No, he doesn't want you to go away. He wants you to draw near. He's not weary of your weariness. Anybody exhausted? Hey, good news. Jesus isn't. Praise the Lord. He's not fed up. He's not exhausted. He's not ready to throw in the towel. He longs to help you. He's willing to heal. He's willing to draw near. Look at him. He's right here. In the midst of their betrayal. In the midst of their denial. In the midst of their confusion. In the midst of the disciples still not getting it. Still not understanding. In the midst of their doubts and fears. He's right here. So when you come to Jesus for mercy and help in the midst of your own anguish or in the midst of your own sinfulness, I want you to hear this. You are doing what He wants you to do. Because one of the old lies, one of the oldest of lies, is when you're ensnared in sin, there's a little whisper. Does it come to you? He doesn't want you near anymore. Oh, he's a good father. He's a perfect father, is this testimony of Scripture. And he wants to draw near to you to bring you the help that you need. I want to draw from the passage that we've read a, a number of points, and I'll begin with this one. Uh, you will always find what Jesus says to be accurate and reliable. You'll always find what Jesus says to be accurate and reliable. And I take that from verses 12 through 16 to, to recount. Remember, he said, you're going to go into the city and you're going to meet a man and he's going to be carrying water and you're going to follow him and go where. That's where I want you to prepare for the Passover. And he said that ahead of time. It's not too much unlike Mark 11. You remember that? Turn back to Mark 11 in verse number 1. This is right before the triumphal entry. And there it says, when they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples... Same thing that he did in Mark 14, right? And said, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it, bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it immediately. And they went in way and found a colt tied at a door outside the street, and they untied it. They found his word to be accurate and reliable. Hey, you can trust him. You can trust his word. You can trust what he says is, is true. When he says something in the scripture, you can put faith in it. Now, some of us have put faith and hope in the words of somebody else and been deeply hurt or disappointed. Has that happened to anybody? I mean, you really put some trust in somebody and they did not do what they said they would do. That's not so with Jesus. If he says to you, come, all, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. You will find that he is accurate and reliable. Now, he says to go to a particular house, and there's pretty good evidence. Do you know whose house this actually is? We're in the Gospel of Mark. Do you know whose house this is? It's John Mark's house. This is a house where they had the, the Last Supper. And just turn with me for a moment. If you're in Mark, turn to the book of Acts. And so that's going to be the next New Testament book after Mark is Luke. Then there's John. Then there comes the book of Acts. So look with me in Acts chapter 1. So once you see a couple things real quick. Acts chapter 1 and verse 12, after Jesus has gone back 
to heaven, it says, They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew and so on. And, and, and so this, and, and that's the same place. And then Acts chapter 12 Beginning in verse 12, just a little context, just real brief. So Peter's been arrested. Remember, they gathered together and were praying, Lord, let Peter be released. Then Peter was released, and they didn't believe that Peter had been released. And, but it says when they realized this, uh, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Same house, same place. Here's the point. Make your house hospitable. And make your house prayerful. Make your house hospitable. Don't live with a closed door. Don't view your home as a sort of fortress that no one can enter. (laughs) Man, your life is short. Your life is brief. And people need homes like this. The church needs homes like this. Places where there's preparation. There's emphasis on Jesus. It's hospitable in a place of prayer. It's John Mark's house, the house he grew up in. And second, I want you to see on this first point, you'll always find what Jesus says to be accurate and reliable. Jesus sent how many disciples to go and prepare? Verse 13, he sent two of his disciples. Mark 11, how many were sent to go find the colt? Two. Jesus never sends one disciple to do something. We need to see this because we live in a very individualistic culture, right? He speaks to and sends more than one. What that means is we need each other. There is absolutely no such thing as individualistic Christianity. Following Jesus is never something that you or I do alone. Following Jesus is not for you to do alone. And it's not just these gospel accounts. It's been this way throughout the scripture, hasn't it? Moses and Aaron, David and Jonathan. In fact, in fact, when you see many of the godly men and women of the Bible get in situations of disobedience, It's often when they've been alone, right? We need each other. So, for example, sometimes we use the phrase, God told me, and then we fill in the blank. First of all, I want you to know that God told me is never a substitute for the Bible says. Amen? Ever. God told me is not a substitute for the Bible says. And a good question to ask anytime someone says God told me is this who else did he tell who else heard that who else thinks that whenever someone believes they are being led of God to do something it's always appropriate to ask who else did he tell and where is the thrust of that from the scripture amen because I will tell you this Satan might tell just one but God never does. 
God has called me to teach the Bible. Great. Who else did he tell? God said we should get married. Great. Who else did he tell? God said I need to make this decision. Great. Who else did he tell? Now, why is Jesus telling them these things? I think this is also helpful. He's not just giving them some um, little exercise to go and perform. Obedience, when they go and prepare, he comes in and sits at the table. So, so, so here's a way that we can understand it. Obedience always leads to abiding fellowship with the Lord. The first consequence of disobedience is a loss of abiding fellowship, right? Maybe some, some of us, that's where we are this morning. We are not in abiding fellowship with the Lord. It's not a relationship where we feel like we're seated at the table, listening to him, learning from him, and becoming like him. Why? Because when he said, go into Jerusalem, and you'll find a man carrying a water bottle, we said, no, I'd rather go to Jericho. Does that make sense? See, it's not for us to say, here's what I want to do. It's for us to listen and respond. For, For example, wouldn't you think it would be crazy if the two disciples, after Jesus had given them these clear instructions... Instead of going into Jerusalem, they went to Jericho. And instead of looking for a man carrying water, they looked for a boy carrying wood. And then they followed that boy to his house. And then they would up and say, why isn't Jesus here? Why? I know this is a little bit of a silly illustration, but but I think this is how a lot of people live. So God doesn't seem real to me. Well, you never listened to what he said, right? Now, he's going to the Passover meal. In fact, he, he says elsewhere, I've long desired to sit here with you. But often we come up with our plan and feel like Jesus is obligated to meet us where we determine that he should. Now his invitation to the table is open, but you do have to follow the instructions that he laid out to get there. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. When I was dating Julie, and uh, she moved to Chapel Hill going to college. She gave me her phone number. Now, these are the, these are the old days, right? Uh, so I had to memorize the phone number. I didn't have to. What I mean to say is I, I wanted to. And so she wrote down the phone number and handed it to me, a little scrap of paper. And I did not respond this way. I did not respond. Are you telling me that if I want to call you and talk to you, I have to dial these numbers in this order? Do you know how many different combinations of numbers there are? But you're telling me if I want to talk to you, I have to dial this area code followed by these numbers. Isn't that a bit narrow-minded? Isn't that a a, a bit uh, too specific? I didn't respond that way. Do you know how I responded? Within about eight seconds, I had that number memorized and gladly, gladly paid that outrageous long-distance phone bill. Remember those two, right? Why? Because I said, if I want to talk to her, I'm going to go the way that I've allowed clearly to go. And the same is true of the Lord. We live in a very individualistic, selfish culture that tells us again and again and again, it's just you and you determine the metric of truth. Here, Jesus sends in two and says, you'll go and prepare Passover meal. We don't, friends, please hear it. We don't just get to come unto God any old way we choose. But by grace, he does allow us to come in the way that he has established. God tells you what he tells you to get you to himself. 
And once he brings you to himself, he tells you what he tells you to increase your joy in knowing who he is. And you will always find what Jesus says to be accurate and reliable. Second, what we can see from this passage is Jesus knows the truth about you. Jesus knows the truth about you. He says to them, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And then a little bit later on when Peter is giving his emphatic declaration that he'll never deny, he says to Peter, this is the very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he had said to them, uh, I will sh- uh, you will all fall away. You see that in verse 27? Now look at uh, verse 50. Read it to yourself. Mark 14, 50. He was right, wasn't he? They all left him. They all fled. Jesus knows the truth about you. There's an old saying, I'm sure you've heard it. You can fool some of the people all the time, all the people some of the time, but never all the people all the time. Well, you can never fool Jesus, ever. He knows you thoroughly. He knows what caused you to lose your temper this morning. He knows what's frustrating you. He knows what tempts you. He knows every conversation you had this week, every website you looked at, every thought you had, what you hoped for, every show you watched, every last thing about you. He knows. And he looks far beyond appearances. Now, does that thought alarm you or does it comfort you? Well, he knows you and he's drawn near. He knows you and that's why he's going to the cross. Amen. He knows these men at the table. He knows what Judas is up to. I mean, Judas has it in his mind. I'm secret. I'm going to sneak off and I'm going to meet with the chief priest and they're going to give me money and I'm going to set him up. He knows. He he knows that Peter doesn't know himself very well. He knows Peter is going to make bold proclamations of what he's going to do and within a few hours going to say, I don't even know who he is, right? He knows they will all flee. If you spend much time on your smartphone, you'll see advertisements start to pop up specific to you, right? There's some sort of algorithm that learns your patterns, your behaviors. Maybe they just flat out listen into what you say. And all of a sudden, you're scrolling Facebook and there's an ad or a product catered specifically to you. The tech is so intelligent. But, but those ads come up, why? In order to get something from you, right? Get your money. Get your attention. But Jesus knows all about you. But his desire is to give to you. To bless you. He knows what you lack. He knows what you need. And he knows what you most need is him. Love's always personal, isn't it? When you really love a person, what you love most about them is them. You know, when my dad passed away, I didn't up and miss the things he got me. I miss him. That's, that's what love is. So would you love to sit at the table with Jesus? Would you love to recline at the table and be in his presence? Or do we just want things from him? He's establishing a covenant. And praise God Almighty, we can say this. The covenant is not based on us keeping our word. The covenant is based on him keeping his. The covenant is based on his promises. That's what he says. 
Verse 24, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Back to Dane Ortland in his book, Lowly and Gentle. He says, the most counterintuitive aspect of Christianity is that we are declared right with God, not once we begin to get our act together, but once we collapse into honest acknowledgement that we never will. Jesus is revealing himself as the true Passover lamb. He knows the truth about you. Again, you remember in uh, Genesis 3, the first instinct of sinful Adam and sinful Eve was to hide and to cover up as if they could fool God. He knows you. He loves you. He's drawn near to you. And that brings us to the third point is, is Jesus promises to never betray or deny his own. That's the contrast here, right? At the table is sitting one who's going to betray him and 11 others who are going to flee from him. And the very things that they are purposing and planning to do in the upper room are the things that Jesus promises never to do to his own. When Judas betrays Jesus, he does so with clean feet, right? I mean, Jesus washes Judas' feet, he washes Peter's feet, and he's washing feet that are either going to walk out of that room to go betray him or flee from him. But Jesus' feet are about to be nailed to the cross. Jesus experiences in his suffering the worst things that human beings can do to each other. Betrayal, denial, abandonment. The moment I really need you and I'm staying up praying in agony, you fell asleep. They're going to lie about him. He's about to go through a mockery of a trial. I mean, all the worst things human beings Due to each other in the fallen world, Jesus is going to experience abuse, scourging, being used as sort of a pawn politically and religiously. I mean, it's all going to come right here. He's going to experience all the worst that human beings can do. But that's not all. He is also, at Calvary, going to take on the holy and righteous wrath of God against sin. And we'll study this more the next time. That's what leaves him agonizing in the Garden of Gethsemane, saying, if there's any way for this cup to pass from me, may it be so. But in the midst of all of that, he'll never betray you. He'll never deny you. In fact, he's, going to, he's come to do the very opposite, to restore you. And to redeem you. I want to use an illustration that I hope makes clear the extent of what Jesus has done for us. I mean, even those of us who uh, know and love Jesus with all that we can, we still need to appreciate in greater detail all that Jesus has done for us. And so uh, you, you might remember back in 2010, the deep water horizon oil spill. You remember this? Like one of the worst environmental disasters ever. The Gulf of Mexico, the BP-operated uh, deep water horizon is considered to be the largest marine oil spill in the history of the petroleum industry, up to 30% larger than any previous disaster. Uh, our federal government 
estimated the total discharge of 4.9 million barrels. And after several efforts to contain the flow, the well was declared sealed on September 19th, after it had started leaking in April, right? So it's, uh, I'm just saying all that to remind you of what a huge disaster it was. Well, investigation, of course, explored the causes of the explosion. And the government published, about a year later, a report pointing to a defective, to defective cement on the well. And then there was a, let me make sure I get this right, a, a fine of $4.5 billion and other payments. Well, I'm just using this as an illustration. So think about it this way. That was a huge disaster, but it was a disaster on three levels. First of all, is what we might call the legal level, the court system, right? You're responsible. You need to pay for what you've done. And that legal cost was huge, $4.5 billion. But it wasn't just a legal consequence. It was also the environment has been affected, right? And you can't put those millions of barrels of oil back into the ground, right? So the environmental damage was massive. First question, who's going to pay for this? Second question, who's going to clean this up? But that's still not all because it's still leaking. Who's going to repair the structure itself? In other words, who's going to fix so that you can pay all you want, but it's still leaking and that thing needs to be sealed so that it doesn't continue to create such a problem. Now, the Deepwater Horizon oil leak was a huge disaster, but there is no greater disaster causing more pollution in the world than our sinful rebellion against God, and it's not even close. And like the Deepwater Horizon catastrophe, it is also a disaster in three areas. Who's going to pay for this? Who's going to pay for what's been done here? Who's going to clean this up? And who's going to bring the needed change? Mark 14, as Jesus sits with his disciples, proclaims the answer to all three of those questions. Who's going to pay for this? Who's going to clean this mess up? And who's going to fix what's broken is Jesus. And you need to understand your salvation in this way. He's paid the debt that you owed. I mean, 65, whatever, billion dollars doesn't even begin to come close. It's a debt you could never repay. Jesus is paying it with what? With his blood. It's the blood of the covenant. And it's going to cover your sin. That's an awesome, awesome reality of your salvation. But it's not all. Who's going to clean this up? Man, the world's a mess. This is part of our job and responsibility as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That where you go, there should be a measure of godly cleansing that comes. Does that make sense? Having paid our debt, now we join him in the cleanup work. So the environment of your life, if you want to think about it this way, your home, your church, your city should be affected by the cleanup work God is doing in your life. Is where you go more full of the light and goodness of God? Do you bring to the scene the character of Christ? Remember, that's his purpose for you, to make you more like him. 
And then also, by His Spirit, He's changing the structure of your heart, which is where the oil spill, so to speak, originated, right? God's changing you. That's where the leak comes from. That's what He's promised. I'm going to give you a new heart. And now what increasingly flows from your heart and into your words, your thoughts, your actions is holy and good and just. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Those he foreknew, he called and justified and glorified. Do you hear it? On three levels, the extent of his work in your life. And what I want to encourage you with is he will not walk off the job. He will not deny you or betray you until the work is finished. The cross demonstrates that is true. If he were going to deny you or betray you, he would have done it in the Garden of Gethsemane and said, I came far, but I'm not going to go that far. No, he lays down his life to pay your debt, to clean things up, and to change your heart. Give you a few specific applications in conclusion from the, what we've studied this morning. First, repeat. There will be a repeat, I think, but, but first, make your home hospitable and prayerful. Make your home hospitable and prayerful. The people in your home who live there, pray together, seek the Lord together, and then be a hospitable place. I I, I love that the gospel of Mark is written by John Mark, remember, who walked off the mission field, and by Peter as a primary source who denied Jesus. This is evidence of grace, that wherever the status of your house is, your home is right now, God can bring something glorious from it. I also will uh, encourage you with this. Before preaching at Pentecost or writing epistles, the disciples were entrusted with seemingly small tasks, retrieving colts and following a man carrying water. I mean, those are not glamorous responsibilities, are they? Are you faithful in little things? Sometimes we want to preach at Pentecost, but we haven't taken the first step to go retrieve the colt, if that makes sense, right? He who is trusted with little things, or he who is found faithful in little things, can be entrusted with with more. We live in a culture, again, that's sort of self-centered and individualistic, where uh, what we esteem is a quick rise to prominence. Here was a nobody, and they became somebody over the course of 12 weeks on a reality show, right? And most people don't handle that transition well at all. But godliness is something built slowly, over time. It's the long direction or or long obedience in the same direction. Have you begun to think that there are certain things, retrieving colts, following the man carrying water, that are beneath you? Who rides in on the colt? Jesus does. Who is the Passover prepared to proclaim? Jesus. He does great things, but he is the hero of heaven. Our joy is obedience that makes it evident who he is. I just wrote, jotted this down. (laughs) Another application. Seek to obey Jesus quickly 
in order to abide in him deeply. Again, if you're this morning, the state of your soul, the state of your heart is not abiding deeply in Jesus, ask, is there something that clearly he has told you to obey that you've resisted? And then here's so you can rest, your soul can rest. Trust that the covenant is kept for you, not by you. The covenant is kept for you, not by you. I'm going to invite you to stand with me, and we'll pray together. And then a great uh, way to spend these next few minutes is to seek the Lord on how to live this message out in your life in the coming, uh, in the coming days. Father, we thank you for Jesus, and in response to our betrayal and denial, you've offered your body and your blood this amazing grace. We thank you for Jesus and pray that what we see in the Scripture is not just something we hear, but now is something that we do. May our homes be hospitable, geared around not uh, any, any other purpose than abiding in Jesus. Give us grace that we are willing and eager to obey you quickly, whether that's to retrieve a colt, whether that's to follow a man with a water jar, whatever it might be, in order that you would be glorified and known and that we would abide in deep fellowship with you. Father, give us grace to trust that your word will always be found accurate and reliable. May we trust that it will be accurate and reliable, that you will never betray us or deny us. And you are the God who is working all things together for our good. Thank you for paying our debt. Thank you as you work in the world to clean up the mess and have promised a new heaven and a new earth. And thank you for bringing help to our very hearts. So give us now grace that we don't what, what isn't leaking out of us, so to speak, is toxic, but now because of your grace and spirit in us, it's helpful and brings a knowledge of who you are to the world and environment around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.